Dear Father, there is nothing less human than to be unreflective. Indeed, it is the very privilege that you have given us minds to think and to reflect, to ponder, to remember our relationship with you. There is nothing so unhuman as to simply go through the motions as though it were habit, instinct, as perhaps an animal would do. So tonight we ask that you would hear our prayers to lift up our hearts to you, our minds, to give our full attention to your word, to consider what is being taught, though we may think we know this already. Lord, soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't do somber very well. We prefer boisterous celebration. So in a service such as this, we come and we feel a bit awkward perhaps. Perhaps it's soft and silent or solemn or something less than we would like it to be. And yet it is only appropriate that we would stop from all of our hustle and bustle, from all of our running about, from all of our seeking highs in life to remember the lows of our Savior that we might be lifted up. Good Friday is perhaps an unwelcome interruption into our lives. And yet God calls us to consider the cost that needed to be paid for our sin to rescue us from our deserved judgment. Here as we come to John 19, Jesus has celebrated the Passover with His disciples. He has gone out into the garden and prayed for what He is about to do asking the Lord to strengthen him. If the cup could pass from him, O Lord, if it could pass, may it be. But not my will, but yours be done. Even as he prays, he sees his disciples asleep, not able to keep awake, unaware of that sorrow that he goes through, that supreme suffering. Judas arrives on the scene with his soldiers in tow, and arrests Jesus. He is brought before Pilate. Then he's brought before the high priest. Then before Pilate. Then before Herod. Then brought back to Pilate, who is trying to figure out, what have you done that these people hate you so much? Neither Herod nor Pilate found him guilty. But the chief priests and the scribes refused to let Jesus to be released, insisting that Pilate crucify him. Pilate took Jesus into his chambers yet a third time to tempt Jesus to turn from the path. When he tried one final time to release Jesus, the leaders threatened him, saying if he didn't crucify him, he was no friend of Caesar. And then we read in verse 13. 
So at the place called the stone pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha, there Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. To the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it. A few weeks ago, I worshipped in a church where the sanctuary was shaped as a cross. It's the pattern of many of the old churches, some of the old European cathedrals, if you've been to Europe to see them, that shape of the cross. Why is that so? we were to survey the world's religions today, we would see that many of them have signs, symbols that would speak of that particular religion and what it means. There is meaning behind those symbols. The symbol of Christianity is the cross. It was not always so. If you would visit the catacombs today, you would find that that painting which has not yet faded there in the early church where they were where they were worshiping underground, that there were pictures painted that would somehow symbolize Christianity. There were any number of symbols. The peacock, which was believed to symbolize immortality. The dove, which was symbolized uh, peace. The victor's palm branch, to speak of victory. Or the Jesus fish. Symbols that had meaning to those who were in the know. Those letters of the Greek alphabet, The fish, ichthus, the word in Greek, meaning Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Other symbols came later, following later, but the church came to settle upon the cross. Why? Why not a manger? After all, He came into the world to save flesh. Why not a carpenter's bench? to speak of how he served. Why not a waste cloth to speak of his giving to wash the feet of his disciples? Why the cross? The simple reason the cross was chosen was because it was central to Jesus' teaching and his life, to the apostles' teaching. Christ crucified for sinners was the cry of the apostles. Paul stated it clearly again and again in his epistles. I preach Christ and Him crucified. When we fail to preach the cross, when we fail to remember the cross, very quickly what seeps in as we think of how one is made right with God is that of works because of what I've done. There is that danger for that is our heart's bent. Our heart is bent toward wanting to offer something that we might do to bring ourselves to God. Therefore, the cross must remain central for it is nothing we have done but what He has done. 
Christ spoke of the divine necessity of his suffering and death. And the cross would be the instrument. The instrument of death reserved for the worst of criminals. The Romans had inherited it from the barbarians when they saw how deadly it was. Just how cruel. And to deter criminals and any who might think of doing such wicked deeds, they adopted this instrument, causing great suffering and torture to those who were hung there. When Christianity became legal and the church could worship openly, it chose the cross as its symbol. When Constantine established Christianity as the world religion. He told the story of in a battle where he found victory that he saw the sign of the cross in the sky and he read the words, in this sign conquer. And from that point forward, that symbol was adopted more and more. Increasingly in the church, though it had been there as the early church recognized what Jesus had said as they pondered what he had taught and as they had listened to the disciples' letters being read to them. And churches took the shape of the cross that all who entered might reflect upon his death and not forget what price was paid that they might be brought to him. And the cross is the reason we can come into God's presence. There our faith sets eyes on the atonement for sin. At one level, the cross makes no sense. Jesus was declared innocent no less than three times by Pilate, turned away by Herod saying, I find nothing that would bring this man to any punishment such as the people called for. Again and again, declared innocent having done no wrong, no deceit in his mouth. Not a single person could accuse him, not even the holiest, when he said, who of you, speaking to the Pharisees, that strictest of religious sects, who of you will convict me of sin? Why did he die the shameful death of the cross? Because he bore our shame. He bore our curse. Paul explained it in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse that hung over us by becoming a curse for us. For cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Quoting that Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 21. The Romans regarded crucifixion with horror, as did the Jews, though for different reason. The Jews made no distinction between the tree and the cross, between a hanging and a crucifixion. They fixated upon the thought that this was a death reserved for the worst of sinners, those who were accused of the greatest of sin. The curse of blasphemy is what they brought there to Jesus. Declaring that He had made Himself the Son of God, verse 7. That curse for anyone who makes themselves equal to God. Indeed, indeed, anyone who takes that claim to himself that he or she is God is inviting 
the very judgment of God. Anyone other than Jesus, who is the very Son of God and one with the Father and the Spirit. For God will not share His glory with another. He will remove all that which would seek to pollute His creation. He will cast out anything which would take from Him, which would distract anyone from looking to Him for all of their needs, for in Him alone are we satisfied. In our sin, that is what we have done. Claiming that we know better than God. Rebelling against Him. And the cross was not His, but mine and yours. Verse 17 struck me all week and tonight as well. He went out bearing His own cross. But it was not. In the truest sense, it is our cross. It is our judgment. Yet He, in keeping with the will of God, came to deliver. God punished our sin righteously on the cross. The Son was cut off that we might be forever accepted. That is how we make sense of the cross. God proclaimed that He would rescue sinners by sending His anointed one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the one whose punishment would make peace for us between God, between us and God. In the darkness of Good Friday, God was reconciling lost sinners to Himself. And this truth must be proclaimed again and again, for the attacks are as recent as today's paper. Today I read an, account, uh, an essay from the New York Times. They determined to publish an essay by a non-practicing Jew in which this man wrote, we should stop paying attention to God. Now is the time to teach our children to pass over God. He went on to declare God unworthy of our worship. His anger, he said, his pettiness was to blame for the wars in the world. We're simply following after Him, He said. God is the angry one. The wars, we're simply following His example. How perverted. How wicked. He recounted how in His early days He had grown up practicing the Seder as a Jew. Reminding his readers what they do at the end of the Seder meal. Open it, we open the front door and call out to him that is to God, pour out thy wrath upon the nations that did not know you. Declaring that God 
He's the one who has that right, and then he goes on and slams God for doing so. I don't know what to say. He who rejects all that was symbolized in the Passover, which he practiced as a boy. Indeed, in the Passover meal, Jesus celebrated with his disciples, teaching them that all this pointed to him. That the wrath of God was against sin. That God justly punishes wrath for He seeks a kingdom to come. A new heavens and new earth where all wickedness will be banished. All will bow the knee and worship Him and Him alone. And He does so because He loves His own and wants them to be protected from all wickedness. He does not act in anger irrationally. Indeed, He shows us that we ought to stand against all that is wicked and unlawful in love. Calling all people everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved from themselves. Jesus, the Lamb slain to deliver sinners. The picture found in Genesis 22 where the Lord calls Abraham to offer up his son, his only son, that one who was his offspring, his hope, his connection to the future. Yet he and his offspring and all his offspring were under the curse of sin and deserved to die. And Abraham in faith believing that God would provide a way, prepared to offer his son Isaac on the sacrifice. The angel of God stopped him and God provided a substitute such that Abraham declared, on the mountain of the Lord he has provided. And on Mount Calvary, there outside Jerusalem, God provided a sacrifice without blemish. His wrath being poured out on our sins there that we might be welcome to Him, that we might come to Him and know peace to turn away from all wickedness, to know the path of life. A sacrifice there without blemish. His Son given to cover all our sins that we might be brought forever into the family of God. What of his death? As Jesus suffered in anguish, being forsaken by his Father, declaring, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There was no angel to stay his execution, though sinless, he endured hell. 
for the love of his Father and for his own. He endured the white-hot anger of God against sin and declared, I thirst. How he must have shuddered when he spoke that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that story, don't you? Lazarus brought up to heaven to Abraham's bosom and the rich man is cast into hell because he refuses God. And what does the rich man say? Please send Lazarus. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in torment. How he must have shuddered at the thought of bearing our sin and being separated from the Father. He knew the deep thirst experienced by the psalmist, infinitely so. O God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. My soul longs, even faints for God. In death, he did not turn from God, and through his complete submission to God, he opened the way for us to his Father. What an amazing Savior! After fulfilling all Scripture, he declared, It is finished, and gave up his spirit, laying down his life to open the way for sinners to come to God. Through his perfect sacrifice, the accuser can no longer accuse. And the fear of death is gone. John Owen, that great English pastor and theologian, while on his deathbed, showed the faith of one who longed to see his Savior and did not fear death. As he lay dying, His book publisher came to him and said to him that his latest book was nearly published, was at the printers. The Glory of Christ was the title. To which he replied, I am glad to hear it. It has been my life's work to consider the glory of Christ. But, oh, Brother Payne, the name of the publisher, the long-wished-for day has come at last, in which I shall see his glory, that wondrous glory, in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in the world. His fear of death swallowed up for the fact that the Son endured it, opening the way for Him to come to the Father. What an amazing Savior. Ask yourself, what does the Bible say to this question? Why did Christ die? Was it because of Judas? Was it because of the soldiers? Was it because of Pontius Pilate? Was it because of the crowds? Yes, all of the above. But these were the secondary cause of his death. The primary cause of his atoning death was his desire of your salvation and mine. For it says, he laid down his life. No one took it from him. 
He laid it down of His own accord. He even spoke of that in John chapter 10 that that is in fact what He would do. In His baptism, He identified with sinners. In His temptation, He refused to be deterred from the way of the cross. Regularly in His teaching, He predicted His sufferings and death and set Himself towards Jerusalem to give Himself up for sinners. Constantly using that word must. It is necessary that I do this. This was not some external compulsion, but His own internal resolve to fulfill all righteousness. Paul's words in Romans 5 are so powerful. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ laid down His life for us. And again in Galatians, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself up for me. What love. God doesn't say, clean yourself up and then I may look upon you and do something for you. Rather, His love reaches down. It reaches down to you and to me to deliver us from the curse of death. He calls to all, turn, turn from your sin. Why will you die? For I delight in the death of no one. Octavius Winslow put it this way, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Our only hope of deliverance in the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Or, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Why the cross? For there was no other way. Neither you nor I could do anything to save ourselves. Luther would say, most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. We know that we are not saved because we're good or by good works or because of our professions. We're saved because of what Christ achieved on the cross. So as we come to the Lord's table, we do so with a sense of the meaningful death of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who has given His body and blood that we might be brought near to God. This was no senseless death. In Christ, God provided for us what we could not secure for ourselves. And He gave what we had not, which was life in Him. Come then, glory in the cross. 
partake by faith. Fellowship at the table, that your faith might be strengthened, that your love might be deepened, and that your hope might be strengthened. For Christ has died that we might be reconciled to God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, how necessary this death, how necessary for us to repeat it, for we are regularly reminded that the world hates the cross, that the world hates you, even as recent as today, in the paper, on the internet, in, on the radio, wherever we turn. Lord, keep us vigilant in teaching this truth to our children, for they are surrounded by this as well. Help them to know, to make sense of the cross as you have declared it in your word, not turning to the left nor to the right, that they too might profess their faith in your Son, that together we might fellowship, knowing that because of what your Son has done, Our lives are secure in Him. Our hope is eternal. And our love grows stronger. Hear us, for we ask it in His name. Amen. As we come to the table, we do so to speak of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you to turn in your inserts again as we're going to confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed as they are found there. And I ask you to stand as we do that, and then we're going to remain standing for the song that we sing after. As we draw near to the table, brothers and sisters, we confess our faith in the triune God. We say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us now join our voices together in song as we turn to number 337. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended? We'll sing those five stanzas, number 337.
Beloved, we now come to the table in keeping with faith and in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ as He has called us to recognize His giving of Himself for us that we might be brought near to God. Beloved, hear these gracious words of promise spoken by our Lord. Come, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I will, give, I will take my yoke upon you and learn, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Let us lift them up to the God of our salvation. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Beloved, take, eat, remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Lord Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
to remember. The hymn writer says, Lord, in meekness and humility, I will remember thee. Even now, as we take this wine, beloved, take, drink, remember, and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed to the complete forgiveness of all our sins. As we partake together, we also confess together that the Lord is worthy to be praised. Let us use that responsive reading found in your insert there, words from Psalm 103. I will begin. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity who redeems your life from the pit, who satisfies you with good. As we come to the Lord, let us do so in short prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God, we give you most humble and hearty thanks for your great mercy seen in your Son. As we have heard the greatness of his sacrifice, greater than all our sin. May we, as we come humbly and penitently to your table, also go forth rejoicing, knowing that our sins have been blotted out, not in part, but the whole, that we might be able to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us turn to number 350 in our hymnals, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, as we respond in song. Let's stand to sing.
Let us pray for the offering. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your great gift. You who are rich became poor for our sakes that we in you might inherit the earth. Lord, we are so abundantly blessed. May we give cheerfully as need arises, even as we give to the Fund for Benevolence here this evening. Give us that heart of generosity which flows forth from an understanding of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. stand to receive God's parting blessing, then we will sing those verses that are printed on the back of your bulletin. People of God, hear these parting words of blessing. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. May we go out and bear much fruit to the glory of his name. Amen. Amen.